0: Welcome to the Anime Research Group. With so much anime produced each season, many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fear hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And each week we get together to give one show its chance. Watch the first few episodes and discuss what we thought of it. And this week, Arakawa Under the Bridge.
1: Yeah, the show ran from April 4th, 2010 until June 27th, 2010 for a total of 13 episodes. It was made by Studio Shaft, the studio behind shows such as Hitamari Sketch, most of the back of the Monogatari franchise, Nisekoi. All of of it. All of it, yes. Or uh, Madoka. It is based on a manga series by Hikaru Nakamura, which ran for 15 volumes from 2004 till 2015. Her other big hit was Saint-Oni-san, a manga about Buddha and Jesus living together in an apartment. It had a second season later that year called Arakawa Under the Bridge X Bridge, and there was also a live-action TV show in 2011 and a live-action movie based in 2012. The first season was directed by Yukihiro Miyamoto and Akiyuki Shimbo, and on that note, Freya?
2: So yeah, Shimbo is a interesting character. He's one of the directors with um, more name recognition outside of Japan, I'd say. Not mm-hmm. to the same level as um, Hayao Miyazaki or even uh, Mamoru Oshii or Hideaki Anno, but he's still up there.
0: I would say that uh, if we discount the ones we think of as movie directors, um, it would be him and Watanabe are the two that are most well known. Certainly,
2: I guess when we think about Shimbo, we have to think about uh, we have to talk about him in terms of before Shaft and Aftershaft. Like many directors, he got his start uh, working on animation on things back in the 80s and the 90s. His first directorial project was Metal Fighter Miku, which, uh, despite the fact that we've all watched it, there's nothing really notable to say about it. He also directed something called Starship Girl, Yamamoto Yoko. Again, I don't know anything about that. His most prominent work in the 90s is probably the 19 episodes of Yugu Hacker he directed. This is really where he sort of solidified his quote-unquote style. Now, people like to talk about Shaft having a style. Shinbo's style is not that, is the interesting thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll talk more about what Shaft's style, uh, where that came from in a bit. I'm getting... A lot of my information from uh, some articles on Sakuga blog, which should be linked in the description of this, if it has a description. Um, I invite you to read the rest of their articles because they're very good. But yes, uh, Shimbo really loves contrast. He loves having uh, weird expressions on uh, characters that sort of melt into weird effects. Uh, He loves having um, really bold colors and... he really likes having uh, an unashamed flashing effect. So, his style, I like it. Or at least, I like the bits of uh, the Yu Yu Hacker Show episodes he did that I've seen.
1: I think we know what you're talking about based on the shows of his we've seen and also in this show. It yeah. is quite noticeable at times.
2: Yes, though, debatable how much he's responsible for. So going into the 2000s, he directed a show that not many people remember called The Soul Taker. This is where it gets interesting because uh, Shaft co-produced one episode of that. And incidentally, um, Kyo- Kyo- uh, two of the episodes of that got outsourced to Kyo- uh, Kyoto Animation and were directed by Yasuhiro Takamoto, who uh, directed Hyoka and Dragon Maid*. And it was his work on that was apparently quite influential on his style later on. Uh, also, rest in peace to him because he tragically died last year in the arson attack. But yes, one of the episodes was co-produced by um, Shaft, and this is where the this is where the man who would like to become the uh, head of Shaft, Mitsutoshi Kubota, who took the reins of the studio in two thousand and four. After Shaft worked on uh, Soul Taker, he remembered Shimpo and his stylistic. Output Shaft up to this point had been a studio that that worked on other people's shows. Basically, they weren't doing that well financially. So Kubota had the radical idea to acquire Shimbo in quotes. So Shimbo moved to Shaft and um, formed the appropriately nicknamed Team Shimbo there with um, Shin Onuma and Tatsuya Oishi, and they decided to. Have a new direction for the studio, where Shimbo would sort of act as a supervisor and trainer for uh, directors coming in. This is where they started to be very experimental with their um, with their visuals, and we got shows like Sukiyomi Moon Phase, which nobody <laughs> remembers, <Good old> <laughs> which is good, which is good because it just allowed them to experiment on some pieces. I shit remember from- it.
0: It is carved
2: on my soul. It is carved on my soul. <laughs> and then, the, the, I mean, where they really got into their stride was with uh, shows like Pony, Pony Dash and uh, Negima and
0: Wreck. They made Wreck? Mm-hmm. Yes, but that but that wasn't a shimbo.
2: Yes. Really, it's 2007 to 2011, I suppose, where people would th- consider them to have, quote-unquote, peaked.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, if I can just sort of butt in here, uh, looking through the output of Shaft, it's sort of amazing how much of this I've seen. From the time Shimbo came on board in like 2004 till when they did uh, Madoka, uh, I had seen pretty much everything they did, <laughs> with the exception <laughs> of this show and Dance in the Vampire Boon. <laughs> Have you seen F, A Tale of Melodies? I, I'm aware of it uh, for other reasons uh, through, the, through the game, uh, but okay. not the uh, show.
2: So, yeah, this is where they defined their style, I suppose. Um, but also where their shows are the most visually distinct from each other. Because I would not say that uh, while there's similarities, of course, it's about Sensei and Monogatari are that much alike, for example.
0: I would say that Zetsuo Sensei is like the evolution of Panny Pony Dash. Yeah. Uh, which, aside from the fact that that is really insulting to Kimetta Koji, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is morally true, I think.
1: I would say, well, there's stylistic similarities in the way they're directed, edited, and uh, produced. It's the actual approaches to the way they try to do comedy or tell their stories is very different.
2: And uh, this is where I get onto the um, thing of Shaft definitely has an aesthetic that mm-hmm. they uh, keep to, like I said, which was probably a strength at this point of time because it effectively allowed them to <laughs> give themselves a brand. We are Studio Shaft. Our shows tend to look like this, which is good when people are looking for studios to produce the, their shows. It's good to have um, something to make you stand out other than Mm -hmm. somewhere, because a lot of studios, it tends to be, okay, we work with these sets of freelancers, so our shows look very different from each other. There are exceptions to this Kyoto Animation, and one big difference between Shaft and Kyoto Animation, KyoAni have a lot more variation in in what individual directors seem to be allowed to do. Because while they do have a certain unified aesthetic, they also have shows like Dragon Maid and... um,
1: uh, Violet Evergarden was visually very different from the rest of their stuff. It was a lot more detailed, for example.
2: Yeah, but I, you could still say that they have a quote unquote aesthetic, almost because it feels like they're obligated to.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you've put it correctly. It's just a much easier way to sell your product to any company with a clearly defined style, even though it might get you typecast as, so these are the kind of shows we used to produce and this style works really well with it. Yeah. So here's a whole bunch of things that are very similar tonally. So we're just going to hand them to you because you've done a good job on Monogatari. So we're going to hand a lot of shows that...
2: It's funny you say Monogatari because I was going to say, excluding Monogatari before Madoka, they're mostly making screwball comedies. Mm-hmm. So onto the thing of where the Shaft style came from. A lot of people think it comes from uh, Shimbo. Not really. So of those uh, of the team Shimbo uh, members I mentioned earlier, Tatsuya Oishi is sort of where this style seems to have come from. Um so he had worked with Shimbo on a lot of his uh, they'd worked together on a lot of shows in the 90s, so he was a natural fit for uh, for this loose team of people. And in this period from 2007 to 2009, he sort of became their uh, opening director, as it were. So he's made a lot of their more iconic openings, like the first uh, Sayonara Zetsubo Sensei, um, all of the Hidemori sketch openings, I think, which are fondly remembered by some people, at least. This is where his repertoire of imagery sort of um, came to define Shaft's later output. So mixing, uh, a lot of different types of, uh, a lot of different mediums, like putting live action and, uh, manga stuff in, uh, into, uh, their shows, uh, having odd transitions and very inventive typography to the point that he even got credited as typography director on a bunch of their shows. Uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, they do tend to have a lot of text in, in pretty much everything they do
2: and very striking use of color. So yeah. He went on to direct a lot of the most important episodes of um, Zetsubo Sensei and uh, Hitomaru's sketch and all of those, and eventually got put in charge with Shippo, of course, of Monogatari. And then he got stuck making the uh, Monogatari movies for seven years and hasn't done anything since that. Um, So it's very interesting to compare those movies, which came out in 2016, to Shaft's output since back when the guitar is finished because it's like a hyper version of all of his, uh, stylistic stuff. And I really want to do it on this podcast just to see what you two, uh, think of it. I think okay. it would give us a lot to talk about. So since then, Shaft's aesthetic has sort of become a watered down version of a lot of his quirks, I suppose, which is kind of unfortunate because it's not allowed a lot of their, uh, Junior directors to really carve out their own style. There are exceptions to this. Um, Mamoru Hatakiyama, the who left Shaft, directed uh, Showa Genroku Rakigo Shinju and um, the very popular Kaguya Sama Lover's War recently. And he, well, left and has managed to carve an identity for himself. Uh, Yukihiro Miyamoto, here's where I get onto the person who um, (sighs) co directed this, uh, really loves playing around with. different art styles, even more so than the others, seemingly. I can't. I couldn't find much on him individually, other than that he's very well connected. Uh, so he helped get into a certain animation production team uh, to work on Madoka with them. And uh, he was very heavily involved in the latest seasons of uh, Sayonara Zetsuko Sensei, but I couldn't find much about him outside of that. Actually, I think he directed the the fake show that I made without Shimbo's input, so there you go.
1: Anyway, back to Shimbo. He's- <laughs> <laughs> Just from looking at the anime Shaft has produced since he came on, he's basically credited on every single one. Yes. And since 2012 or so, he's been credited as chief on most of them. There's only yeah. two on the list, including one that's still upcoming where he's not credited at all one being mm-hmm. the new Madoka side story and then uh, an upcoming multi- mixed-media franchise called Assault Lily Bouquet.
2: Yeah. So his role at Shaft basically became the guy who supervises new directors and sort of gets put in charge of projects in terms of overall creative vision, at least to some extent, but doesn't do any of the like actual uh execution on an episode by episode basis if that makes sense so he gets involved in some of the writing he gets involved in some of the overall uh creative vision as i said and he does do storyboarding um under pseudonyms or at least he did around the time of came out. it seems like he's stopped doing that since then Um, So I've talked about Shimbo in comparison to Ikahara uh, in our Star Driver episode, and I was probably a bit unfair to him because I sort of said that he put his name on everything while not actually doing stuff. But it's very difficult to tell how involved he is in things, partly because he uses those pseudonyms and partly just because he does get credited as chief director for everything. So it's almost certainly the case with more modern Shaft stuff that he is involved somewhat. Uh, and he's also the person who does all the interviews. And watch, like, comes in like a line. It's an odd case because he was it was like a thing from the Mangica that she specifically wanted Shaft and him to make it. But it also doesn't seem like he was that heavily involved in the actual show.
1: It doesn't feel like... I, I wouldn't have immediately said, oh, this is a studio Shaft-style show just based while watch when I was watching it.
2: They were definitely trying to go for a different aesthetic. But I, I I can definitely tell it's a soft show just from the editing.
1: <laughs> uh, one show I would be interested in watching at some point would be Nisekoi because that <laughs> is a shonen romance comedy full of tsundere love triangles. And it's written by uh, Naoshi Komi, who is one of the most underrated mangaka out there because all of his earlier one-shots and experimental works were brilliant to read. It's just a shame he then did Nisekoi, which wasn't great but uh, all of his earlier stuff is worth reading however as a Shaft show it just feels so tonally inconsistent with it, with the majority of other stuff they do
2: maybe also while we're here uh because nobody remembers Natsuna Arashi and Ian's gonna kill me if I don't mention it they also <laughs> made Natsuna Arashi which is a show that people who like Shaft should watch
0: it's just it's one of the shows that I love that no one I talk to has seen <laughs> except me. I've seen it. Uh, yeah, um, it's okay. And, it's pretty good. I, and the reason I the reason I love it so much is just for the opening episode, which is one of my favorite uses of time travel in any. Oh yeah, show. that is good.
2: Modern Shaft is kind of well. It's unfortunate. Uh, since 2017 they've had a large exodus of uh, animators and directors which in some sense is a good thing because those people can go elsewhere and maybe define their uh, style a bit more but it does mean that their shows have suffered quite a bit and to be honest from what people in the industry say they've always been very bad they've always had problems with um time scheduling on their shows I think a very good example of this is uh, back in Monogatari, uh, which as much as I love it, one of the episodes first aired with um, placeholder uh, <laughs> scenes in it. And the final three episodes, I think, it didn't broadcast for with the rest of it and came out months later on the internet. Not the best studio environment in that sense. Who knows, though? Maybe with all these people leaving, Shimba will uh, get more involved as a director again. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, now that I've rambled about Shaft Rages, uh, do you two have anything to say before I talk about the non-Shaft staff members for this? Uh,
0: just that, like, thankfully we've done this and now so whenever we refer to Shaft in the future, we can just point people to this episode. <laughs> yes. uh,
2: Where you should uh, read the articles that I talked about instead of listening to what I say.
1: Um, I mean, the only things I have to say about Shaft is just want to point out... Uh, Director of Ghost Hound, also made Rec, or of the early Shaft shows. The author of Zionara Setsubo-sensei has currently a new uh, Kojuku Kumeta, as Ian has already pointed out, currently has a new anime running that's worth checking out, at least if you enjoyed the other show. And other than that, I don't like Monogatari. Just, just seeding it for the future, for whenever we watch it, I really don't like it. And now moving on to the other people.
2: Our series composer is Echo Akao who is another case of um, pretty much mostly done adaptational work and not originals. I feel sorry that she's been stuck like that, but it is what it is. So she's done a lot of (laughs) adaptations, so I'm going to try and pick out stuff that's more relevant to us at least. She wrote After the Rain a few years ago. She wrote Both Seasons of a Manchu, I think. You guys remember Do You Love Your uh, Mom Etc? show? (sighs) <sighs> yeah she did series composition for that but also flying witch which was decent a yeah, uh, lot of slice of life in here uh and my roommate is a cat most relevant mostly to ian though also to the other two of us i guess uh she did series composition for mysterious girlfriend x one of my favorite manga period and they had a really good adaption and then for music we have actually talked about this guy before, but not in an episode that we uploaded. Um, <laughs> so this is Masaru Yokoyano, who did the music for Rolling Girls. Um, Ian, what did you think of the music in *Joshiraku*? Raku?
0: <laughs> I, I don't really remember anymore. It was fine. <laughs> okay. Diddy, what did you think of the music in Iron-Blooded Orphans?
1: It was one of the best things about the show.
2: Okay. And the music in my ego is one of the like things that's like unironically good about it. Um, <laughs> and in terms of uh, other stuff, I think a lot of people like Your Lie in April, so people would recognize yes. his music from that. Yes. Also, he did the music for Occultic 9, and it was one of the better things about that again. Okay, I'm done. My voice <laughs> is dying.
1: Before we move on to the episode, just one question. Should we also point out that Chimbo directed a bunch of hentai?
2: Oh, I somehow forgot about that despite writing it down. Yes, Shimbo directed Five Hentai <laughs> in the early two thousands, which is very interesting because his final well, I can't believe I forgot to say this because it was like one of the things I was gonna like focus on before starting. Oh well. Uh yes, Shimbo directed Five Hentai in the early two thousands. We've all got to make a living somehow. <laughs> yep. I mean, he probably did it. Uh, willingly. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. it makes it very interesting because his final project before joining Shaft is the series of OVAs called The Portrait de Petit Cosette. Now, some of the themes of that show are probably responding to the fact that he directed Hentai for a few years. That series of OVAs is very interesting. I think you've just colored my view of that forever. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely interesting, and maybe we should watch it again and talk about it on this. God, the content warnings for that are going to be... you to watch uh, the
1: five hentai to see how much this has influenced. No, we're not watching the five eye. hentai.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think we should add uh, Kazette to the list.
1: And I think with that, we can finally move on to Arakawa Under the Bridge. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine.
0: this episode is going to be long but it's going to be worth it because uh (laughs) i i'm thinking we're going to say less about the episodes than we've been doing uh so far yeah and i have to do Um, all the work anyway so and part of the reason i wanted to watch uh this show was basically because well as i said and i didn't realize until now it's one of the shaft shows that came up while i was like at peak anime watching (laughs) that i somehow didn't watch and i think it's probably obvious to Freya just how much my watching of Shaft has coloured my view of Andy. <laughs> 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 like, there's Shaft, and then there's Chiaki-Jekineke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, 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 and they're battling inside of me. Well, Specifically, it's the
2: Zetsubo-Sensei Hidamari sketch, and that's the Arashi era of Shaft.
0: Uh, deferring to the length of time that this episode is going to be, I'm going to say very little about the voice cast, other than to say like maybe one or two th- things that they were in, and to point out that this might be some of the most prolific and well-known uh, you that we've had, just like, across the board. Also very regular shaft
2: collaborators.
0: I've, I, it's weird because the way the episodes are structured is we've got, like, lots of, like, they cut them up into sort of sub-episodes that seem to correspond to where the tra- the chapter breaks are in the manga. So although we're going to do three episodes, uh, in terms of the manga,
1: we're covering about 24 chapters. Yeah, each episode is essentially five to ten, ch- like five or six chapters. It's
2: interesting because Sangatsu also included the chapter breaks literally in their episodes. Hmm. One of the things I did actually like about that
0: show, but never mind. I do like it, but uh, one of the things that's going to be a problem in this episode is I feel like they do it and uh, uh, as a, like a cut, as like a hard cut when they should leave it and let the joke sink in for a while before doing the cut. For the first episode, uh, where it's about our main character uh, Ko Ichinomiya, uh, and he is introduced as the future owner of the Ichinomiya Corporation. Uh, he's comes from a wealthy family. He's kind of had the best of everything in life he gets good grades he's like reasonably attractive he went to Todai, die but his relationship with his father has like dominated dominates his thinking he has been taught by his father that he should never be indebted to anyone and this is important because it's part of the uh, paper thin premise you need to throw in it's it's a really weird setup because he's Uh, accosted by a group of youths Uh, and his uh, trousers are left floating uh, like halfway up a bridge pillar. Well, he wants to go and try and retrieve his pants because of course you do. And he falls in a river and he gets saved by a girl called Nino. The bit where he falls in the river looks great. It did. Like, this is another...
2: This is another thing. I don't know if it's Shinbo, but Shaft really like having um, underwater scenes, um, and they usually do them pretty well. I mean, Daddy, you probably remember all the like scenes where I've forgotten his name. Ray is uh, just underwater in his own head, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. gets yeah. Yeah,
1: those are, those are all great. Yeah, he gets saved by Nino, who is a girl living under the bridge, which is where our entire show takes place. And she's a Venusian. Or she's crazy. We don't know. And you're not supposed to. (laughs) We have
0: no real reason to believe that uh, she's a Venusian. And we'll we'll, um, talk about this in a second. But part of the problem, well, as uh, Cole sees it, is that by saving him from this river, he is now indebted to her. and
1: Massively so.
0: You can't be in debt, so he has to try and make it up to her. And he sees that, well, she lives under the bridge, so haha. I've made some money on the stock market. I'll buy you a house. That's that's what you want, right? Right. In this economy, yes. Please do buy me a house. Uh, she seems pretty satisfied with her lot in life, at least from what we see her. Um, and she she's not really interested in getting a house. <laughs> or anything, really. And the fact that she doesn't really want anything causes him to be, uh, to have an asthma attack. Because, oh shit, I'm indebted. I can't pay you back. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God.
1: He can't pay her back uh, until she mentions that there's really only one thing she wants, which is to experience love. Because while this show is basically a screwball comedy, technically it's a romantic comedy. But with much more heavy emphasis on the screwball than the romance.
0: There is an overarching romantic plotline. It doesn't seem that important from where we're standing.
2: Yeah, and it's also the weakest bit of the show.
0: So he agrees uh, that he will pay her back by falling in love with her, and part of this is that he feels obliged to live with her under this under the bridge, which it was surprising for me because. She lives in a, uh, like, makeshift, like, cardboard house. One-room house, yeah. To to the side. But she talks about uh, having a villa, <laughs> uh, which is where he will be sleeping. And the villa is a literal pillar of the bridge. There's, uh, like, the, the bit that supports it, and then there's a bit of going out of after it. That's where he's sleeping. And there's really not that much space, right? He would definitely be in danger of falling into the river if he, mm-hmm. fell, if he fell asleep there.
1: He decides to stay there anyway because that's the only way he can really repay her. And then we end the episode with meeting another character, which is the chief, the chief of the people who live under the bridge, essentially, who turns out to be, surprise, a kappa. Or at least you'd think so, but no. He's just a guy in a kappa suit.
2: Which he is filled with water.
1: Yes, because he's swimming around.
0: Uh, one of the important th- uh, things that the village mayor does is, if you live under the bridge, you have to be given a new bridge name. Like, Nino's name is almost certainly not Nino. Uh, it's coming from, well, Nino-san 2-3, which is embroider which is on the school, uni- uh, school tracksuit she's wearing. He is kappa because he wears a kappa suit. <laughs> well, also village chief, Sancho. Uh, and he dubs Co. Uh, Recruit, which is not a name he is particularly happy about, but <laughs> he will come to accept it. <laughs> yeah. uh, generally shortened to Rick. I, I think we'll, we'll be calling him Rick
2: for now. Yeah. You can probably tell that we're jumping around uh, not telling you what the jokes are.
1: Yeah, I'd say for episode two and three, there's not really much that's that's worth saying. Besides the quality level, which we'll be talking about in a bit, but, and what
2: characters get introduced. I yes, guess.
1: Uh, because it's all—it's a screwball character that's all about the weird characters they can introduce, such as a guy who can only walk on white lines, yeah, uh, or a sister or Hoshikawa, who is just a guy with a star mask for head. Most basically, everybody but Nino and Rick wears a mask of some kind.
2: Shiro uh, doesn't either.
1: The majority of the characters, though, wear some kind of mask to obscure their faces and just be the wacky characters they are. But episode two and three primarily just focus on individual adventures. Yeah, um,
0: I, I will say uh, you might be surprised by the length of the first episode uh, because there is a somewhat significant post-cred scene, uh, mm-hmm. which is all about Ko co- realizing that Cardboard uh, shelter that Nino lives in is much better than his quote unquote <laughs> villa, uh, yes. and she has a really nice. Like, I want to say it was a shit long, but it's not. It's not. It's, it's 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 like a velvet-filled bed type deal. But she doesn't sleep in her bed. She sleeps in the
1: cupboard under the bed, which is <laughs> the best joke in that episode, into my mind at least. And We just spoiled it.
0: Yep. Yeah, with a show like this you you can you have to talk more in terms of impact than uh, yeah. most of the general plot point.
1: I'd say that most of the jokes weren't that impactful bar a select few, but the actual animation and the style they were presented in on the other hand were very impactful.
0: Mm. I will, I will say that the 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 way they do the jokes relies on the reaction of Rick in much the same way that if you've seen Saino or Zetsubo Sensei, there are yes. the jokes uh, covering how the characters act, but most of the, a lot of the humor comes from their reaction to it.
2: This is yet another shaft show where Kamiya Hiroshi is playing a sort of Tsukami straight man who's, and who has rambling monologues about his reactions to the weird people he meets. <laughs> At least Araregi gets to be the bokeh a lot of the time, too.
0: So Rick slash Co. Uh, is voiced by Hiroshi Kamiya, uh, who is uh, Nozomu Itoshiki, the eponymous Sensei, and Araragi in the Monoguitari series.
1: Noted pedophile.
0: What? Noted redeemed. Noted, radio,
1: noted <laughs> reformed
0: pedophile.
1: Araragi, not the voice actor.
0: I was a way to say, like, I had not heard I had not heard about this uh, <laughs> when I was doing my research for the show. <laughs> yeah, you might also know him as Shinji Mato in Fate or Akashi in Kuroko, or a ton of other things. But to keep the the uh the theme going, Shinobu, who is I mean, it would be wrong to call her a member of Aragis Harum because she's not um <laughs> there's much more to her character than that. She's more like the foil. Also, the show really doesn't have a harem, but
2: that's beside the point.
0: Yes, I, I mean, uh, but she's more like his foil in the like supernatural realm uh, as the vampire. Yes. This is uh, voiced by Maya Sakamoto, who is Nino. And lots of other stuff, too. <laughs> and lots of other stuff. I will say only Shield Phantom Hive in Black Butler. Haruhi in in High School Host Club.
2: Uh, she also is actually has a singing career outside of uh, voicing stuff. To the point where, I don't know if this is trivia or not, but she's the only character in Monogatari who doesn't sing their own opening because <sighs> she doesn't want to huh. like, have a crossover between her voice acting and her singing. Interesting. She also collaborates with uh, Yoko Kano a lot.
0: Episode two is going to center around him coming to terms with the fact that he is in a relationship uh, of sorts with Nino Uh, and also it's going to be a chance to introduce us to a lot of the other characters uh, who are residents of the Arakawa bridge community he has decided that he doesn't want to live on a platform under a bridge and so has constructed a house for himself, it's actually quite a nice house
1: Uh, yeah he's seemingly hollowed out part of the pillar and put in a a really nice bathroom as well as we'll see in episode 3 I don't think he did hollow it out
0: this is what I was going to say, is that uh, actually when you look out uh, late, later and you see it from the outside again, you see that the walls are where the outside was. So it's, he's just put all walls where the
1: plathom uh, yes. that Yes. That also makes sense. But it, it does still, the questions about the plumbing still remain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, it has a nice door, uh, carpet. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's quite nice for a, a small room under a bridge.
1: Also, it must be hell to sleep in whenever somebody's driving over the bridge. We don't have to worry about that because it's a comedy and nobody ever drives over the bridge. So yeah, he's
0: Ben he realizes now that he's spending a lot of time um with Nino. Uh she's sleeping over in his house, quote unquote. Uh but even so he's really struggling to like have conversations with her. He like wants to ask her a million questions. Uh favorite color, uh <laughs> what kind of music are you into? That sort of the the sort of Getting to know you questions, because he realizes he only really knows four things about her: that she claims to be a Venusian, uh, that her name is Nina, uh, that she lives under the bridge, and that she has that really really nice bed. Arguably, only two of those are actually true.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> they they essentially have trouble communicating, and Co being unable to properly communicate with Nina seems to be a plot thread that's probably going to. Spread throughout the entire show, as it's unlikely that his kind of straight man anxieties will be resolved. With I think when me and Frey were talking; they called him a manic pixie dream girl, which
2: is I, a, called, I, I flippantly refer to Nino as that. Yes. yes.
1: So at least so far, she's one of the characters in the show who never does a reaction to anything besides just. Uh, yeah. Okay, she's very soft-spoken. Yeah. Doesn't seem very strongly like um,
2: uh, the the term i used conjures up a certain image she's a lot more reserved than that i'm not sure how i feel about her because yeah. it's blatantly obvious from the show that we're never going to get inside her head
1: yeah yeah it's not about her it's about rick reacting yeah. to her, which kind of raises issues about her as a character but she,
2: she does work as a
1: foil to him
2: honestly she's
1: one of the funny
2: funnier characters for me in the show but mm-hmm. uh
0: I mean, the fact that she refers to herself as a Venusian is kind of like her uh, defining characteristic. She doesn't react to things the way everyone else reacts to them. She's, I don't want to say expressionless or aloof, but um, she she definitely seems like unfamiliar with sort of standard social cues.
1: She does have the dead fish eyes most of the time, whereas all the other characters have pupils and stuff. Nino's is just kind of the blank. Uh, stare that you usually get for hypnotized characters or mind-controlled characters yeah
0: and like the next scene is actually like a good illustration of this because uh they're having a drum bath outside well she is having a drum bath outside and of course um rick uh considers this to be like insane and we get the sort of like the oh how innocent reaction of uh is she bathing naked in there and no, she's not. She's she's wearing a towel. She's she, uh, ju- she's always just sort of slightly off. Uh, like when Rick takes the his turn in the oil drum bath after her, um, she washes his hair for him, uh, and she does so using a sort of bathroom cleanser product.
1: It's actually one of the nicer, uh, nicer scenes in the three episodes. It's the mm-hmm. only one that really hits a kind of emotional note because it plays into Ko's last real emotional moment with his father before his father kind of uh because as we, we've we already said that ko's whole gimmick is he's never in debt drilled into him by his father who raised him and at a certain point in his life his father just went well now you gotta repay your debt and raise me <laughs> and then he just became a giant baby
0: yeah the representation of his father confused me until uh I got you to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's still a silly
2: scene, of course, but the way the way it's played, it has come across as quite nice.
1: The final bit of the episode is uh, we have a kind of an uh, an introductory meeting, uh, like a welcome celebration where Rick introduces himself and we see a whole bunch of the other cast, such as Sturman, Esper Twins. But most predominantly, the third half of the episode uh, revolves around Sister. A uh, giant man with a lot of with a with an Uzi, dressed in a nun's habit, who seems to run a an Orthodox Russian Orthodox church by the riverside.
2: Yeah, this is where we get into the like introduce them off screen as sister. Um, so Ko's all excited to see her or whatever, and then he gets there and like the joke is, oh, it's a guy, and of course his reaction is, that's not a sister, it's a brother, and it's like, yeah.
0: It's interesting, though, because although his reaction is the sort of uh, non work one, everyone else around him is actually more than okay with this.
2: Yeah, um, that's what I was going to move on to say. Unlike most shows that have this kind of joke, sister themselves, they're not played in the same way that this kind of uh, joke normally is. Like, they're fairly... They're fairly normal. There's no, like, close-ups of their face. Like, oh, look how horrible and manly they are in their clo- yeah. in their woman's clothes. Um, and, I mean, the, their joke is more that they're, like, an army veteran. Yes. Um, but it's more how Co reacts to it that's the problem.
1: I, I think it's fine because it's just to prove that he's wrong to react that way. It's
2: not, though, because there is there is nothing else in the show that's, like, Pointing out that he's wrong for thinking like that, they they do show everyone else as being okay with it, which is fine.
1: I feel like it's more at that point just a surprise with the with his own expectations of sister and yeah, but he does he does it again in episode three. Does he? Yes, yes. He does.
0: My interpretation of the way this works is. Um, the distinction between how he reacts and how the rest of the community under the bridge is important, and that's the point. Yeah. The way he reacts and he thinks is as alien to the rest of them as the way that they think is to him. You see this when he introduces himself to the other people under the bridge. Uh, first of all, he tries to, like, pass off his status as the heir to the ancient EMEA corporation, and then uh village chief dude is just like we get this sort of like the (laughs) tsukami deal between the two of them uh he just sort of like calls him out just like no uh you haven't accepted your your true nature as rick i mean this is kind of the thing of where we have to like suss out if the
2: show is laughing at these people for being weird or just laughing with them yes
0: um yeah and that's not really clear. Uh, these three episodes. Yeah.
1: I I personally would tend more towards they they laughing with them, beca- uh, rather than at them. Because, well, well, they're all crazy, cookie characters. None of them are really represented as bad people in any way, shape, or form. If anything, Ko is generally represented as the annoying, uh, obnoxious character. So, if I can mm. stop you here and push us on to episode three for a second.
0: The way episode three works is the main uh, conflict, if you want, is uh, him butting up against uh, Hoshi, uh, who is a man wearing a star on his head. Uh, Very briefly, I I will just say uh, this is probably one of the most famous voice actors, uh, Tomokaze Sugita, who is... Joseph Joestar, who is Kion, uh, who is uh, Gintoki, etc. Um, and lots of other people, yes. This guy is probably the closest thing to an antagonist we've seen uh, in this yes. show uh, in that he is portraying as like a rival for the affections of Nino, uh, even though the two of them don't seem to have had any like real relationship. He's going to drag Ko uh, into the uh, the confessional in the church and basically using sister as a lie detector. Mm-hmm. Uh, because apparently uh, they can tell lies. Uh, he's basically trying to find out about uh, his relationship with Nino, because obviously Nino is staying over there. And like, it's confirmed that they're in their, um their relationship. I, I don't know if we would call it strictly platonic, but it's certainly innocent. Uh, they've never went on a proper date. Right and when this is proved sufficiently to Hoshi, uh, he then sort of calls him out, uh, like this is the sort of next uh, instance of like a, of like a homophobic remark. In that he's like, "Well, if you've not done anything with her, you must be gay, right?"
1: Which is just, uh, it's. I mean,
2: it's it's that classic thing of yes, it's coming from a Hoshi, who's clearly supposed to be an antagonist and not supposed to be a a, a good character or whatever, but it's still like the counterpoint is thingy immediately going gung-ho on dating thingy so yeah it's
1: uh it's it's a really bad joke that's used in way too many shows yes you could have had the exact same situation with uh hoshi just saying well are you a coward then or anything like that it would have achieved the exact same result with ko going no i'm not a coward and
2: he even says like limp-wristed and stuff like that it's like yeah yeah that's Hoshi's that sort of character who's supposed to be like obnoxious but in like a funny way, but he was mostly just obnoxious. It's difficult to do that
0: sort of character well. I I I not not to like get on a tangent, because I, I definitely could talk about that for a while. It's uh I I really I'm kind of past it with that sort of representation of character uh as the the asshole, but it's okay because he's funny or because he's quote-unquote in the right the I house the or, rick. The, or the rick from rick and morty or uh well i'm sure you can fill in a million examples in your yes head. yeah it's just a really popular archetype so yeah this is why i'm not entirely feeling some of the the representation here on the one hand like this is sort of a very different way to represent like a homeless community right in the Mm-hmm. I don't think they're in the. It's 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 the sort of community of misfits idea where you've got like a bunch of people and they're just sort of because they're used to like being shat on by society, it like draws them together. I I, I would I, I find it weird that this sort of comes to. I was thinking of the greatest showman, and the way the main characters are in that because. He's also kind of like an asshole in that he does sort of exploit them, but he also comes around.
2: This is not a fair comparison, but Tokyo Godfathers did it better.
0: <laughs> uh, Tokyo Godfathers did a lot better. It's, it was just something that like sort of came to mind as I was talking, and it's something I'm going to have to have a think about after this episode. Yeah,
1: I mean, this is not a realistic representation of homeless by any way, <laughs> shape or form. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not.
2: But it is based on a real thing, right, Ian? Uh,
0: yeah, there's a archetype in Japan, uh, which is the Dempa archetype, which the Dempa literally means radio waves. Uh, and if you've seen, uh, what's it, Dempa owner, uh, yes. You're familiar with... Wait, is that also made by Chef? Yes, it is. It's usually like uh, in modern representation, like a female character, I think. Yeah. I don't really know. I don't really have a lot to say about it. It's where we have the problem is
2: if is the show laughing at them for being like this or is it like laughing with Yeah.
0: Them? To just to finish off what I was trying to say, um the trope in like Western the Western canon would be the tinfoil hat wear. So yeah. for example, Chuck in Better Call Saul who claims to have electromagnetic hypersensitivity. But they're the sort of cookie, vaguely uh, I, I I wouldn't say fantastic, but in the sense of having fantasies and delusions uh mm-hmm. rather than uh, other things it's actually like a surprisingly uh, common character trope uh when i was looking for uh, examples uh i saw uh, a screenshot from the mobile game food fantasy where you like uh, <laughs> it was just a character it was just a character and their personality type literally just said electromagnetic wave
1: it's uh, essentially the- chunibyo who never grew
0: out of it um, there is a relationship with the chunibyo uh archetype but they are uh distinct
1: mm. Uh, episode three essentially, mo- the majority of it is all about Nino's and Co's date and how he's trying to ask her out. She doesn't really understand. He drives up with a fancy car, fancy clothes, and everything. And she's like, Okay, what do you want to do? So he puts together a picture show with like, uh, like a children's book almost and like to show individually each step of the day to explain to her what she's going to do. And she's very impressed with the with the picture book but she that's it and then she leaves it was really amusing when we
0: watched it because um like after the guy had went through like his studying uh classic shoujo manga to learn um, <laughs> that women clearly want uh lamborghinis and roses
1: yeah.
0: uh i was like uh and she said i don't understand what you mean by a date i was like oh god he's gonna do a presentation and <laughs> he did a presentation and <laughs>
1: eventually he it's it just comes down to i just want to go somewhere with you you know anyway go and she she essentially just says well i want to go see the mouth of the river because like she put like a little grass boat into it and so they decide to do that
2: i mean initially the she wants to go to venus but (laughs) whatever
1: he declines that idea because leaving the stratosphere would be a bit out of his budget so he gives her what looks very much like a wedding dress and they'll probably head to the mouth of the river in the next episode i actually think once again it's one of the nicer moments in the episode uh where 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 we just says well let's go anywhere you want to go with of course the joke of not to venus but uh like the like the hair washing scene in episode two it felt like it was it actually had a nice mood going there
2: i'd actually started to switch off in the second half of this episode though i think just the jokes weren't working for me for some reason Mm. Like the the like the presentation scene. I don't know what it was about it, but it. I don't know if it went on for too long.
1: I think it's that's a weird, a
2: weird thing to say in a show with like such snappy editing as this. But yeah, it didn't do much for me.
0: Yeah. So we've covered what's happened in these episodes. We haven't given away too much of the jokes, uh, although hopefully we've given at least a little bit of a flavour. What sort of um, like visual presentation things uh, stuck
1: out to you, guys? I mean I think that's the strongest aspect of the show by far but it's the, I don't think it's wrong of me if to say it's very shafty. Yeah. Uh, because it has a lot of the things it's it's the shafts though, It's lot lots of walls of text everywhere at at certain points of time it's tie it has a lot of text on it
2: For switching between art styles uh, and switching between color palettes a lot um
1: there's the uh, different framing uh, aspect ratios, depending on what the mood of the scene is. Lots of
2: close-ups on people's eyes. And... A lot of
1: rapid-cut editing when they're surprised by something of somewhat unrelated shots. A lot of uh, eye close-ups as well, which I found to be a recurring thing. in. Uh...
2: It works better in modern Atari. <laughs> no offense.
0: Uh... Yeah, I, I, it, feels ab- it does feel a bit out over- of place.
1: Overall, it, it has built, once again, a very strong visual style that is great to look at. There's some really beautiful shots in it. They seem to be going quite a lot for a light pinkish color. Uh, I don't know exactly what it's called, but very often they have grass in the foreground that's not properly colored in, but just a white pinkish color with a strong outline to really make it give it an otherworldly feel. Nino's dress at the end is the same color. But I I think it's built a very strong visual style supported by uh, good editing that works with the comedy but as you've said it could do with lingering on the jokes longer because with the with the amount of chapters we're going through there isn't really time for anything to sink in because we're immediately on next bit
0: yeah i don't want to oversell it but one of the the things that you mentioned is something that's very important to me is the uh like non-standard use of color uh to give a a different feel to the scene it's um chef's directors
2: do that a lot and I'm honestly not sure if it comes more from Shimbo or uh, Tetsu or Ishii, but that's beside the point.
1: On the music front of things, I think we we joked about the very first bit of music that played after the opening, which was kind of a very upbeat, funky, almost heist movie style piece. But other than that, I didn't really notice the music too much. I
2: noticed the one who uh, had the like um, the guy like... Yeah, doing the sort of gibberish speech.
0: So the opening is a song called Venus and Jesus, which uh, by Etsuko Yakushimaru. People might recognize
2: her from the Tatami Galaxy ending or... um, Penguin Drum or Sailor Moon Crystal or whatever. (laughs) And other music outside of that that I've listened to. Uh, I quite like her voice. I think I'm probably in the minority here, but there you go.
0: I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't dislike it. Uh, it's uh
2: fine. The s- opening was storyboarded by Sayo Yamamoto. She storyboarded a lot of openings. Uh, people would know her best for uh, Yuri on Ice and Michiko and Hatchin.
0: To talk about what the, like, contents of the opening were, I, g- I guess we didn't really feel the, like, Monogatari vibes uh, from it. Uh, <laughs> I did it love terms, it. In, co- in terms of color palette, definitely it's quite interesting because in one of those sort of scenes that uh obey like cartoon logic there's kind of a thread going from it of uh nino acting and rick reacting to what she does so like we see her get on a plane and the plane is uh is seat number two three and then it's coming out like over the sky and then at some point she just, uh, and then at some point she just sort of like dives from it into the into the river, and then he opens the door and she's swimming with a bunch of really realistic looking fish, uh, which they've decided to incorporate.
1: Fish are generally very predominant throughout the entire opening, and also a bit of the first episode.
0: Yeah, and we also get this when like because he like goes into space at one point. And <laughs> like she'll drop him from an eagle and then she'll like pick him out of a river and it's one of those sort of surreal scenes that doesn't make any sense when you explain it but feels right in the moment yes and and that's something that like just really appeals to me it's why i love Paprika.
1: it just has a very nice sense of energy that's appropriate for the show with a screwball tone that fits its characterization quite well i think you pointing out that he's always reacting to what she does is very appropriate
2: like this was actually a pretty good opening. I also really like how at the end he falls in the water and then when he comes out, they go to the like normal color palette and uh, art style.
0: I pref- I definitely prefer it to the uh, ending. The ending is uh, Upside Down Bridge by uh, Suneo Hair, uh, who is Kenji Watanabe, who also did endings for uh, Honey and Clover. This one's weird because, uh, how would I describe it? It's kind of like a grainy... Uh, found Fuji would be the wrong wrong thing, but it's definitely done as like a video camera. In fact, yes. we we get the like the recording and the timestamps on it, and it's just showing like scenes of the in, in the interior of the home where uh, Nino and uh, Rick are living. And then it's kind of weird because we see sister, but it it's kind of like they've stopped recording. <laughs> At least that's why how I interpreted yeah. it the first time I saw it. Yeah. And then we just get like some nice uh, little vignettes about the other characters on the bridge uh, many of whom we haven't actually seen yet but we'll see like Hoshi on top of the bridge playing his guitar uh, which is something you'll see more Uh, we see Shiro painting the lines that he has to follow uh, Kappa running etc etc and it's just nice and it ends just very appropriately with Nino sitting on the bridge Rick coming up beside her and then uh, it just sort of lingers on Nino for a while and then she looks out and then it stops
2: (laughs) The thing is, I would like it as like a pleasant winding down from the rest of it. But uh, most of the episodes have stuff happen afterwards.
0: Yeah, this is this is this is one of the interesting choices we we talked about it at the end of the first episode because it has um, like an extended scene. But even the third episode had like extra stuff.
1: I mean, I, what I assume them to be is their chapters that didn't fee- fit into the more coherent story they've been managing to tell with each larger episode. But they were funny yeah. enough that they wanted to keep them in, so they decided to just make them uh, post credits chapters instead of trying to tie them into the larger story.
0: Yeah, yeah I guess that's fair. Um, and then they, but they also have the uh, next time on thing that we'll always see, but this time uh live action kappa
1: (laughs) thumbs up for live action kappa yeah denny uh
0: how many debts do you need to repay to this show
1: yeah i actually quite enjoyed this show as a comedy show uh, of this speed not all jokes are always going to land but some of them did quite nicely and there's enough strong animation and interesting visuals to keep me entertained especially with some of the more Uh, emotional scenes that they've managed to land much better than what I was expecting from this type of show. So I think I'm actually going to give this a 3.5. How about you, Freya?
2: So yeah, I am conflicted. I'm not going to judge a comedy as how many laughs a minute I had, because that's dumb. Um, And there were some, some good laughs in this. uh, And i did like the visuals. It's not my favorite shaft show in that aspect. Uh in fact, I think I would put it somewhere in the middle, uh, as far as that goes. But it still does look nice, and as Denny said, they landed the emotional scene surprisingly
0: well. Um on the plus side, it's no Maria Holic, <laughs> <laughs> And it's no uh. Sleeky Moon phase. Um,
2: I think part of the problem is that Co. I didn't really talk about this at all. But our main character, um, I really like Zetsuwa Sensei, partly because he's fucking depressed. Um, <laughs> and
0: I have a love-hate relationship with Araragi. Yeah, this guy is very much like a B-tier Araragi. <laughs> yes,
2: he's not even as attractive. While I find Nino quite funny, I feel like I would get bored of her. And also, I definitely got bored during the third episode. and. The, like, handling of, uh, is it being mean-spirited towards these people or not, I'm, like, on the middle of. But I did enjoy myself, so three? Uh,
0: for me, I have three and a half deaths to repay, I think. You've kind of covered most of the things I would say between the pair of you. The only thing is that, because I have a very clear idea about how good Sirenar Zetsuo Sensei is, <laughs> uh, I... I know that this isn't a four. <laughs> yes. And I think I think this is it. It's 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 good. I mean, I, I actually kind of do want to watch more of it. I, I wasn't unhappy with it. I, I get my the, the shaft goodness that, yeah I didn't realize had inflicted it had affected my anime development so much <laughs> prior to this episode.
2: That's the thing. I, I gave it a three, but I probably would watch more of it, to be honest.
0: So verdict is rendered. <laughs> Do we have any additional trivia?
1: Yeah, I actually have three pieces of trivia for this episode. One, Ko's voice actor, Hiroshi Kamiya, is married in real life to the manga's creator, Hikaru Nakamura. Nepot- uh, not nepo- nepotism, yeah. <laughs> 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 Two, Hikaru Nakamura is also the name of top chess grandmasters. <laughs> and three, Arikawa Under the Bridge, more specifically the second season, is also the origin of the... I see you too are a man of culture meme.
0: Which, as I said, I have used as recently as yesterday. Uh, (laughs) So. Uh,
2: I don't normally do this, but I guess I am this week. Denny, what show have you got for us?
1: Next week, we'll be watching our first Studio Dean show, namely Get Backers from 2003. Hmm.